Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio, where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together, along with my incredible guests, we will bring you inspiring and actionable insights to take your life and your business to the next level. This podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. It's a must-listen, and it's all because of my guests. So let's dive in. So today, we get to welcome to Liz Kislick. She's very impressive. She's an accomplished management consultant and executive coach, and she has a remarkable track record, and her expertise has been recognized in prestigious publications like Harvard Business Review and Forbes, establishing her as a trusted voice in the field. Her TED Talk, I watched it the other day. Why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it has garnered almost 500,000 views. So for three decades, Liz has dedicated herself to developing high-performing leaders and workforces. She has tackled complex challenges for various organizations, including family-run businesses, national nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Her exceptional problem-solving abilities have made her an invaluable source for so many clients. And this is important, too. As a member of Marshall Gold, Goldsmith's, we all know who Marshall Goldsmith is, 100 Coaches Initiative, Liz joins an elite group of top coaches and thinkers. She has shared her knowledge as a faculty member at respected institutions like Hofstra University and New York University. And here's why she's here today. Her expertise has also made her a sought-after guest on various podcasts. Liz, welcome. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, I don't think all those things about myself all the time. It's interesting to hear them. I know. It's, when somebody <laughs> reads reads my bio that I had to write, I'm going, ooh, I'm good. I had no idea. <laughs> we forget what we do because it's it's instinctive to us. We We know what we know, and we just kind of assume that everybody else knows it too. Turns out that's not true. You're so right. So I am ready for an enlightening conversation as we delve into the world of management consulting. What would you like to share with us about you and your background before we get started? I have questions. I will be peppering you with questions. (laughs) Um, I think the first thing I'd say, feeling sort of in the moment, is... Just like what I said to you about not thinking about all of this all the time, I'm very forward-facing. I think the past is instructive, but where we can have impact is on the future. And so for me, the past is really data (laughs) more than, you know, I'm not a very nostalgic person, I guess. 
And I like to keep my eye on the future and see where we're going to go next. And what can we do to get there as effectively as possible to be beneficial, particularly people who work with us, for us, et cetera. Because what I really believe in is having good work. And part of good work requires good workplaces. So that's what I'm thinking about and caring about so much right now. And you're really speaking my language because I'm one of those people that's out of sight, it's out of mind. I learned that when I was looking at a couple of, um, you know, how do you clean up the attic? How do you clean up messes? I have a very clean house, but I've got stuff hidden everywhere. I'm actually a bit worried that my attic is going to crush me in my sleep one night. There's so much stuff up there that used to be gash, but I don't know what's up there because I've forgotten about it. And to me, as you just said so elegantly, the past, I, it's the rearview mirror, and I look at it for lessons, but I don't wallow in it. It makes no sense at all to wallow in it. Get the lesson, deal with it, and keep moving on. Yeah, I agree, Denise, because that's where you, you get things done in the future. You know, right. You, know, you, you can revise the past in your mind if you want to, but to have things feel better, be better, more the way you want them, might as well look forward. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about conflicts at work because I know that's a big part of the work that you do. And my question is, in your experience, how often do conflicts arise due to just simple misunderstandings? Um, shall we say every day? <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I already knew that. I knew the answer to that. Look, I, you know, I'm a solopreneur. I work from my home. My office has always been in my home. I have misunderstandings with me. Can you imagine yes. how bad it would be if I had to be around other people? Not good. I think you've put your finger on something, though. Mm. We do that. We are in conflict with ourselves quite a lot of the time. We want more than one thing. Uh, we don't notice it so much unless we've been trying to accomplish something for a long time and it's hard. I'll give you a personal example. Although I'm looking at my hands right now and they look good, I've been a nail biter since I was, I think, three or four. And I go through cycles in which, if I'm very stressed out, I may go back and bite my nails, even though I've mostly trained myself not to do it. Internal conflict. If I can have conflict, just as you said, with the person I know the best, false assumptions, they're going to be happening all around me all the time. I will be conveying something I don't mean to convey or I will not be communicating clearly, sometimes because I don't know my own thoughts. This is part of the human condition. It doesn't make anybody bad or wrong. It's just why being in relationship is actually work. You know, I, I don't know if you know who Byron Katie is, but sure, I've listened sure. to her quite a bit. And when I'm questioning my own self, which I do a lot because 
who else is going to do it? I have to understand what I'm thinking, why I'm thinking. And I will often, and I do this a lot, I say things out loud because in my experience, thoughts are like a a really messy highway. You're going to have 14 thoughts just crossing. You know, they already ran the stop sign. You're in trouble because you can't, you know, quite figure out which one is really important. So I will isolate the thought that's really bugging me and I will say it out loud. And then I will say, is it true? Is it really true? And I have a dialogue with myself and half the time I dump the thought because it wasn't true. That is, first of all, I'm going to say that's very mature. That oh, thank is you. Not... My mother would not agree with you. And she's passed away, but she still wouldn't agree with you. Well, maybe she knew a different aspect of you. But oh, the did. ability to, to do that, to separate yourself from your own thinking, takes a certain amount of humility and equanimity and the willingness to see what's really there. The Byronky stance of is that true is something, actually, if more people would ask themselves, there would be less conflict. And, you know, and I'm going to go back to something else I heard or read a 100 years ago, a long time ago, and I think it was attributed to either Mary Kay Ash or Dolly Parton, but it's something about stinking thinking, and I'm in the South, so I have to say it Southern. Don't let stinking thinking take over your mind. And yeah. we do. Yeah. We're all guilty of it, whether it's just a moment or two in time or whether it's most of the day. Whatever it is, stinking thinking is not healthy. And the studies have shown that we do it more than we have any consciousness of. I know. I catch myself all the time. And I've said this on the radio, and I'll say it again right now, but we're talking about stinking thinking and things that stop us. We may not even be aware that it's stopping us. But I will tell you right now, if anybody, let's say I was in a Walmart parking lot, if anybody tried to speak to me the way I sometimes speak to myself, I would need bail money. I kid you not. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't tolerate it, but we tolerate it when we're thinking about ourselves. That has to stop. Yes. One of the things I often encourage people to do is to speak to themselves as kindly as they would to a dear friend. Because we chastise ourselves all the time and quite harshly. You know what? I... I caught myself doing this this morning because I live in the deep south and we have two seasons, hot and hotter in hell. That's it. And six of six months of the year, hurricane season. So right now it's just starting to get humid, which is when I go in and I turn on the air conditioner and I don't go back outside again. But I stuck my head outside and you know, I got up this morning and I hoisted my hair up into a ponytail, went outside. And when I came back in, I let my ponytail down because, you know, I wanted to, you know, tighten it up or move it or do something. And I had Hagrid hair, Harry Potter Hagrid hair. It was huge. It looked like I'd moved to Texas and I hadn't even done anything with And I had to talk to myself and say, you know, curly hair is a good thing, Denise. You don't have to mess with it. Just tie it back up and go about your business. But I had to have that conversation. It was silly, but it had to be done. Well, I will encourage you on the curly hair front. I have it myself. I just keep it short. 
I keep my line and tied up. It's long. It's past my shoulders, and it's either tied up, tied down, or stapled. I don't want uh-huh. to uh-huh. me. <laughs> get it off of me. <laughs> but I don't have to style it. It's got its own life. Yeah, <laughs> Let's just leave it there. Okay, so we're talking about misunderstandings, and what I'd like for you to do is elaborate on the concept of using curiosity as a tool for conflict resolution, whether it's you, yourself in your kitchen, whether it's you at the coffee pot or the the cooler at the office. How can leaders effectively employ curiosity in these situations? What kind of questions can they ask? Oh, I love that question. Because my experience is that it's through this kind of examination that you can get to the bottom of things just in the way that you talked about asking yourself, is it true? So one of the first questions is, what's really going on here? which is not just what is my reaction to what's going on here. When you ask somebody what's going on, very often they will tell you a story, and the story is interwoven with their thoughts or feelings about what they're seeing. But that already boxes up the actual events or the real data. And going back to... What are the facts? What's really happening? And separating that from reaction is very important. And asking people, how did that come to be? And I try hard to say things like, how did that come to be? Or what do you think is going on? Rather than asking why. Because Mm. often why, why can imply a moral judgment as if there is a right or wrong reason rather than a real-world, concrete, factual set of things that happened in some particular sequence. That makes sense. And, you know, we all have our biases. We, we do. We, anybody says, oh, I'm not biased, is pulling a fib. They're lying to you. Um, so how often are you finding that the responses are being framed in maybe it's an unconscious bias or maybe it's an absolute bias, but how often does that happen? Or can they even be identified? I would say in gross terms, it's most of the time because the first way we see anything is from our own perspective. And that includes everything that's happened to us in the past and all our hurts and woes. And To be able to say, okay, that's my reaction. I see my reaction. I feel my reaction. Now let me look a little closer or a little deeper. So that's one way of being curious, to sort of dig in, go into detail, go a little deep. The other way, though, is to say, what would you see if you zoomed out? If you weren't looking just at, this conversation, this incident, this meeting. If you looked at what else is happening in this organization or what's happening with the C-suite, the executive committee, 
that has then translated down in the following way to my boss or to me. Those kinds of things are also very important because we can get caught up in detail and not actually see the outside forces. That is brilliant. And I think we, we know that this is happening at some level, but we're irritated, we're mad, we're, we're, we're afraid. You know, something's going on that's probably got our back up. And we're not going to be thinking about, well, you know, this is not just here and now. This is a bigger story. What now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another curious question has to do with what you would want instead And it's funny because even when people are reacting against something, they have not always constructed the better idea, the better outcome, the better process in their minds. And this is something I learned in the beginning of my career when I was involved in customer service. A customer who's unhappy and knows what they want is usually easier to help than a customer who really just wants to complain or vent or expects mind reading. I'm thinking baggage claim while you said that. I instantly went to baggage claim. Like, oh, geez, nobody wants to be behind that person who is just having a fit. Exactly right. And yet, sometimes people find a kind of protective cover in just blowing up because they may want something that isn't even relevant to the specific conflict at hand. So we're back to thinking, thinking, right? Because you have not gone down any kind of logical road. You haven't thought it out. Yes. It also goes back to the biases. Okay. Um, Because say, for example, oh, this comes up all the time in interdepartmental conflict. One director, let's say, will say, oh, the director in the other department doesn't respect me. I need them to respect me. Well, what does that mean, actually? What does it look like? Sometimes, of course, there are people who disrespect other people. That can be dealt with in a behavioral way. But a demand for respect often neglects what the real concrete things that are happening and what they happen to be. And, for example, there may be procedures that aren't working. It's not about respect at all. You're just dissatisfied. The fact that the director can't fix that thing and give you what you want may be because the procedures are outside their control, just like they're outside your control. And what we really may need is a task force that's sponsored by the CEO to uncover what is really going on here and do we have the right software for the situation, you know? These, these things are often not about what we feel like they are. So many times clients will get in touch with me and will tell me they have a problem and their employees need training. They don't know how to do something well. And when I get there and interview people and ask all my curious questions, 
it's not that they don't know how to do the thing or what the thing is. There are barriers in the way of their doing the thing. And we could train till the cows come home. But if the structural barriers are still there, learning new language, being, I'm going to say it in quotes, more polite, none of those things will matter at all. Well, no, not if the barriers are still there. Exactly. So nothing, exactly. nothing is actually happening. You just have a slightly more polite group of people to complain to. Right. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Okay. They still can't fix stuff. Right. Right. So how do you, when you go in, I'm, I'm curious how, when you go in, because I love how you, you operate and I mean, you're very clear about how to detect what's going on. Can you give us a case study where you went in or are going in where somebody is saying, look, and I'm going to repeat this back. The client, potential client says, it's not what we feel like. It's, you know, we, we feel like this is not, well, that's feeling. So I instantly went, feel. That doesn't make any sense. What are you actually seeing? Those are two different things, aren't they? So can you give us a case study how you helped whoever was in charge, whoever was going to bring your company in, understand that it's not feeling, there are barriers here and let's get these corrected. Oh, sure, because that happens all the time. Um, Very often, the client, who's usually a senior executive, is a little bit at their wit's end. You know, nobody calls me the first day somebody has a disagreement. It happens because there are now standing disagreements that repeat and multiply, (laughs) or there's a longstanding fight between different work groups and the folks in charge truly have no idea how to go about changing the situation. So at one of my clients, for example, after interviewing people and getting a sense of this, just like your question, what are you seeing? I ask them to go back through their operating procedures and make sure that they were still relevant, accurate, timely, and then to check if they were what everybody else believed. And that cleared the path for such better discussions about what do we mean to be accomplishing, how do we choose to treat people, customers expect of us. This is deep work, and it goes back to the organization's mission and their values. So it's time-consuming and messy. You know, these are not easy answers. And I'm guessing, Liz, it also applies directly to their current company culture, which may not have been what they meant to have in the beginning, but somehow possibly got away from them. Does that sound – am I close? Oh, that's happening everywhere all the time. Culture gets away from us if we're not thinking about it and noticing the ways in which we as leaders – are contributing 
to lack of clarity in the culture or are contributing to a kind of irritation or fussiness in the culture. Because all culture is, is the sum of all the behaviors that are happening. Maybe right. I should say maybe all the behaviors. I, maybe I should say all the behaviors that are uncorrected <laughs> that are happening. Well, that makes sense. And uh, in some of these companies, I'm guessing that you're working with are quite elderly. I know you worked with um, some nonprofits that we all know who they are. In fact, you're welcome to say who they are if you if you feel like it. Girl Scouts is one. Oh, that was a very fun assignment. Okay, so... <laughs> This is not really relevant to our subject, but it came into my mind and cheered me up, so I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. Um, one of the projects I did for the Girl Scouts, this was a while ago, um, had to do with, you know, they sell the uniforms and the sashes and the patches and all the things that are the accoutrement of being Girl Scouts. And they sell them in local stores, and they also have professional salespeople who go around the country or have territories. And I did do a training session for a group of these professional salespeople, and often when I do training sessions or workshops, I bring a lot of toys with me because it's very helpful to have your hands occupied Sometimes that lets your brain work a little harder on your thinking. And um, I had to stop a gentleman who was something north of 70 from trying to take a toy that he liked with him when he left. He left. <laughs> you know, these were part, yeah, of, these my were part of my work tools. Oh, right. I, I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Oh, I think that's oh. I, how yes. would you even stop him and say, hey, buddy, give me that back now? Or if you were me, say, look, do what you're told, nobody gets hurt. But I suspect you handled it a lot with more with more couth than I would have. Um, I don't know that it was so couthy. I stood <laughs> at the doorway and held my hand out and said, forgive me, that's mine. Um and he said, you mean I can't have it? And I said, no. And then he surrendered it easily. Oh. Most people, if you're just plain about it, and if you are clearly not mad at them, go along. You know, most people are not looking for a fight. No, and the thing is, I would rather somebody was straight with me than have me try to figure out what's going on in your muddled brain while my muddled brain is trying to figure it all out, just be polite, be clear, say what's on your mind, ask for a resolution, and then have a cup of coffee together if you want to. See, now that's respectful behavior. I had a different – it's so funny. I now have rules that I actually announce at the beginning of a workshop about the use of the toys. Um, You'll know this, this one was also a long time ago when I tell you the name of the client. I did a job for Buick, and I was in a room with a bunch of car guys, mostly engineers. Um, I'm going to say almost two dozen. 
two things happened that were quite fascinating that show you both about culture and about the willingness to communicate. So the cultural one was that at some point, you know, somebody on this side of the table got mad at somebody at that side of the table and threw a toy at them. Uh-uh. Right. Exactly. Really? I'm, you wouldn't permit I it wouldn't... in a six-year-old. No. Right. So I had to make an. So first I had the rule about you can't take the toys. Then I had to have a rule you can't throw the toys. On the plus side, though, this was a very locked up culture. They were not used to sharing truths kindly with each other. Either truth was weaponized, here's the thing you guys did wrong, or it was something to hide from. I won't rat you out if you don't complain about me. And getting those fellows to actually share what was going on was quite challenging. One of the toys happened to be a puppet, a little teddy bear puppet, Uh, that had belonged to my son. And at one point, you could see that this one guy really, really wanted to say something. It wasn't appropriate to call on him. Offered that they could all take the opportunity to say something on someone else's behalf. And he put the bear puppet on his hand and the bear expressed for him. I mean, obviously he was speaking. He wasn't a ventriloquist, but the bear expressed the problem. And after that, everybody wanted a turn with the bear puppet. And see, that makes sense to me because you have now removed yourself slightly from opening your mouth and just saying blah, 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 and I'm probably going to get smacked for this, to saying, okay, the bear can speak for me, and that's slightly more comfortable, so now I can effectively say what's on my mind. Yep. That slight difference. Right. That slight thing, I'm not attacking anybody. The other thing that's really interesting, the bear spoke in a much nicer way then they would have spoken to each other otherwise. Why do you think that was, Liz? It was a clear clear understanding that they were on a different plane now. It was a different playing field. This was suddenly the agreement, the tacit agreement of what was going to happen. And the bear was not them. The bear, of course, was sweet comforting. I won't say they went all the way to Sweden comforting, but um, they were able to behave more kindly to each other again when it was distant. It wasn't that each of them was saying, I'm letting down my guard. They could still be just as crusty as they wanted, but it gave them room to express a kinder, more compassionate part of themselves. I catch myself wondering how maybe some of their childhood legends live in their mind with their own toys, but I'm guessing, this is just sheer speculation, 
that many of these men were fathers and grandfathers and they watched their children and grandchildren play with puppets and bears and dolls and they're not trying to behead the dolls, right? So maybe that's, I don't know. I'm just, that's just fantastic. Fantastic. I have no idea. I love that. What I assumed at the time was that this was a highly testosterone-fueled culture. If you let down your guard, you could be walked on. But that's a very costly way to live every day, always on guard, always ready to pop the other guy in the nose. That's exhausting. Being able to let some of that go and actually deal with the truth, that's a relief. It would have to be. And, you know, Liz, we hear a lot. I've heard this for years, and I rejected it. Work-life balance. I don't believe that you can separate them, like, in the terms of these men that you're talking about, if they're ready to pop each other in the nose all the time. How much downtime do they have from leaving work, getting in their car, going home, and trying to decompress so they don't take that attitude into their family life? Work-life balance is nonsense. You have to be the person you're going to be, I think, in both places. So that's one of the things that people, you and like me, who work independently have an easier time with. We can be more congruent wherever we are, and I hope it's true. I remember my father's an attorney. And at home, we would often hear him on the phone with clients, you know, evenings and weekends. And he had a different voice for his clients. And I didn't like it. it. It, That's my point right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, It wasn't his real voice. It's actually something that I think prevented me from going to law school. I didn't want to be that way. way. Right. And you can tell if as a person, as you know, whether you're talking with somebody, a father, a, a client, you can tell when they're not being themselves. You can tell, you know, we all have our, I don't know, gut instincts, but we can tell when we're being kind of fed or played. I can, I'm sure you can. Yes. Uh, I think people also construct personas for themselves about how they are at work. And to your point about the commute, one of the things that is interesting about remote and hybrid work is the idea of living in your work persona versus who you are. And in today's world, particularly as Gen Z is coming into workplaces, they are not expecting to have to be two different people to be successful at work. No, trying to be two different people makes us psychotic, and we're already in bad shape. Let's yeah. not do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Theoretically, we can be better, be more creative, more innovative, more focused when we can be ourselves in whatever we're doing. 
So it's really interesting to see how much of people's selves is welcome in different workplaces. And that in itself can be a cause for conflict. You know, if I'm hypervigilant all the time, I might be overly tuned into anything that I could take offense at. We are seeing that, gosh, everywhere. It's sad. You know, you and I guess they're called Karens. It's a popular term now for Karens. But I feel when I come across these people on social media, first of all, I just flinch back. My second thought is, what happened to you? Why are you so angry? Can you get some help? You shouldn't, you're, you shouldn't live your life this way. I'm, I really feel bad for them. But they're hypervigilant. They're always looking for something to complain about. And that's not healthy. You're right. And your question is very good. What happened to them? One of the things I encourage clients who are enmeshed in conflict to think about sometimes is not to react to what an awful person their apparent opponent is, but to actually think, oh, poor baby, something is really bothering them. Which That's is like the question. Yeah. It's hard to do, but sometimes it's the only thing you can do is just say, Look, I really do think you're not you say this you don't say this out loud. I might, but most people shouldn't. But you don't want to say, I really don't like you. You really are an awful person, but this the then you should say, Why? What happened? Is this something I can deal with or do I just walk away and never speak to this person again? Which you cannot do in the workforce. So how do you how do you deal with people like that who really are unlikable and everybody around the table really can't stand them? Is there any way to help those people? This is a really tough situation. It's particularly tough if they're difficult to deal with but have some great talent or expertise that the organization relies on. If they are just difficult and are kind of run of the mill, I don't want to be insulting about it, but you know, they're okay, but not fantastic. Then they should be coached and counseled and then their employment should be terminated and they should be right. asked to leave. Right. Because they can wreck a lot of stuff. People will avoid them avoid going to them for data, avoid doing the things they need. That creates bottlenecks and all kinds of problems that have downstream consequences, real consequences. So if that continues for a long time, it's very challenging. What's even worse is when they really are an important contributor. And I work in many family-owned and operated companies and privately held companies. And sometimes you get someone who is a founder who's that kind of way. Very hard to ask the founder to leave. Um, and so people develop habits and processes 
for getting around or away from the stressful circumstances. And it's really challenging. Situations, the organization just doesn't work as well as it could, no matter how brilliant that person may be or how effective they are at a particular aspect of their work. And in the long run, people who really want to feel healthy usually end up leaving. I was going to say they're gone. They can only take it for so long. Right. right. Okay, so here's a, a hypothetical question. Let's say the founder, as brilliant as he or he, she was, has now left the company, maybe from ill health, maybe they passed away. My question becomes, are so many of those ingrained issues and biases now still crippling the company? Okay, that's a brilliant question. Thank you. I thought it was too. It really is, yeah. So I'm going to give you a half yes. I don't know if half is really the right number. So first of all, what happens when a very difficult person leaves, whether they're the founder or not, there's a huge sense of relief. People who hadn't been allowed to talk to each other before suddenly can. You have new information sharing. People who were cowering in meetings start participating. There really are shifts. Um, people feel happier showing up at work, and you have less of what's called presenteeism, where they're there, but they're not really doing what they should be doing. They're just keeping their heads down. So there is this kind of sigh of relief that happens, you know, but then it is incumbent upon the new leaders to really be alert to what were the processes and habits we developed to deal with that person and are we demolishing them and remodeling them? You know, are we taking down those walls? Are we looking for how not to have three layers of checking because we can just do it once and trust each other. That's a time you can really accelerate progress forward. Is this a time when you bring in HR and, and establish new guidelines? So theoretically, so HR should have been there all along. I know, but, you know, it's HR. They kind of do it. They're um, told, I um, think. It's, that's been my experience. So I'm going to be a little more positive than that. Okay, which, good. I'm not real say, positive about HR. You can tell. Yes, I can tell. You are right. For many, many organizations, HR is actually operating as a bureaucracy that handles certain aspects of compliance or benefits management. That happens in a lot of places. In other places, you get a kind of codependent or servant relationship where HR is just trying to keep the organization out of trouble but understands what the founder or senior executive is demanding. But there are also places where HR is really responsible, thoughtful, tied to the mission, and presses back. So I just want to give a shout-out to those good HR leaders. Um, HR is often a place that can recommend new ways of doing things, new ways of looking at things. 
If, however, they have been relegated to the compliance kind of work, they may not have the skills or the standing to support the change. You may actually need operating executives who can see how the business is affected and say so, and then lay out options for doing the work in better ways and therefore for better behavior now that that difficult person is gone. And I, I love this conversation that we're having, and we're going to go right back to the difficult founder or whoever it was. So I guess my question now would be, well, can you discuss the importance of self-awareness and self-regulation in all, in all of this context? Because now we've got a whole different environment going on. And as you pointed out, you don't want to keep making the same mistakes just because they're kind of embedded or ingrained in the culture. So... How do people in the company now cultivate you know, and resolve conflicts and foster positive work environments? Do, do they, first of all, I'm guessing they need to be aware that this needs to happen. I think that's what you just said. I love talking about self-awareness and self-regulation because they are lifelong developmental areas for all of us. Um, some of us, unfortunately, have had truly terrible work experiences and have taught ourselves not to be self-aware because we would see and experience our negative feelings too much, you know? So some people just go a little catatonic and and try to pretend there's nothing bad happening. Self-awareness gives you clues about what's going on. If we feel angry, there's probably been something that we perceive as some kind of violation, fairness, boundary, ethics. We get angry when we believe someone has done wrong. If there's sadness, it may be that we feel something didn't go our way and we don't know how to come back from it. Often in workplaces, horribly often, there's fear that what we're doing won't be good enough, that someone else will not like what we're doing. Paying attention to those things and actively paying attention. Oh, I notice I'm feeling this particular emotion. How did that come to be? What do I want to do about it? What does it mean to me? Those kinds of questions actually let us be more savvy. You don't necessarily need to get mired in your emotional reaction. You can use it as data to think about, what do I want to do now? Do I want to go along with things the way they are now? Do I want to change my behavior? As part of that, do I want to ask for a change in someone else's behavior? The plain communication of, oh, that's my toy. I'd like it back now, is a ridiculously simplistic reduction, but sometimes that's what's actually happening. So knowing what your own reactions are is very important. And for people who aren't sure, a really useful thing is to check into your body and see where your body is reacting. You know, we all have those things. They're like clench their jaw or tap their foot or cross their arms, 
these are all tells about our emotional state. Or when you, you know, grab your tummy like, oh, geez, that just smarted. I do that a lot. When I catch myself clutching my stomach, it's like, oh, what in the heck is going on, Denise? I may not even be aware of it. But if I see or if I notice that I've got my hand over my stomach, something just either ticked me off or it's bugging the heck out of me. But I have to figure it out. Yes, it's a kind of body blow. That's exactly right. And we all have these, these things. I mean, we're animals first. Right. So we have all these, right? We have all these reactions. We just tell ourselves, oh, no, we're supposed to behave. You know, I'm supposed to behave like a grown-up. And, of course, no, I never, are. I never, I never tell myself that, just so everybody knows. <laughs> I don't, no, 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 I'm not going to behave. I'm going That's to not you. and I'm going to do it well. Yeah, okay. Well, yes, and you can, but not everybody feels they can. I know. So, so and some people shouldn't, truly, but that's another yes. conversation. Well, that, but that goes to self-regulation. So now that I know that something is bothering me or I want something to change, how do I manage myself? What are the ways to behave that will serve me well? Now, we have some instinctive things. You know, um, somebody who is stressed in a meeting and doesn't want to get picked on if there's some bully in the meeting may actually sit in a way that makes them physically smaller. If smaller, you draw less attention. This is all theoretical, of course. You draw less attention, but also you're protecting your vital organs. So we do have these behavioral reactions. But self-regulation is about first calming yourself. And when you talked at the beginning of this conversation, Denise, about how you speak to yourself, a big part of self-regulation is being able to calm yourself so you can talk to yourself in a thoughtful and non-reactive way. That's brilliant. It's hard work, actually. Um, and, and you never complete it. It doesn't matter, you know, how much therapy you've had or how well you meditate. There are always things happening at work that are going to be upsetting. It's part of why you need the money. You know, it pays you for dealing with hard things. Um, so being able to relax your body so that your brain understands you're not actually under threat and calming your body first then gives you room to talk to yourself. In your head is okay if you're in a meeting, but it's actually a great thing to talk to yourself separately and even to address yourself by name. Oh, now I do speak to myself out loud quite a bit because honestly – you know, I don't want to be hit by that truck that's coming down the other side of the road and didn't see me, and it's my own truck. You know, I just We all do that. So yeah. I will you know, speak out loud. I may be in the kitchen holding my 20-pound cat. I have to lift from the knees, by the way. And oh. there's no telling. <laughs> He's 20 pounds. And I'll still be speaking out loud, and I, honest to God, will catch him going, are you talking to me? Oh, no, she said, Denise, okay. You know, I'm good. I'm not in trouble. <laughs> 
yeah, talk to yourself and do it in a way that's kind, it's compassionate, it's questioning. I'm intensely curious about why I think the things I think. And I often want answers like, Denise, where did that come from? What the heck were you thinking? I have terrific conversations with myself. If I may, Denise, when you say, what the heck were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You may actually be beating yourself up a little. I caught that as I said it. Yes, <laughs> I, I suspected you did. So I'm going to give you a slight adjustment that you can try out and see if you like. One of the things I learned to do with myself, and I learned this, okay, so I have no sense of direction, and for reasons I'm not going to explain right now, I did not learn to drive till I was 30, which is very unusual for, you know, someone who lives in the suburbs. Um, But I would get lost, and I would get frantic about it. This was pre-GPS. And I learned that I could figure out where I was and find my way much more quickly telling myself how stupid I was and instead said, oh, honey, it's okay. You're going to find it. And then I could take a breath and start to think as opposed to continuing to panic. Exactly. So, so calling uh, yourself look, some sweet name is good. <laughs> I love that. And listen, like you, I am severely directionally impaired. Unlike you, though, I do fight with my NAS system. You know, she's not the boss of me, seriously. So I have learned to leave early because I know I'm going to get lost. But you know what? I find the neatest things. I leave early. I live out in the country, so I can't get, well, I say I can't get too lost. I have gotten really lost. I hate it when they move my landmarks. I mean, I used to travel to my grocery store by, a, you know, watching where the horse trailer was. They moved it and started building a house. I couldn't find the grocery store. I am not kidding. It's bad. It's really, really bad. But I have fun with it. You know, I'm always, I, you know, I wander around and I find new roads or new fields or, oh, that's a pretty cow. And then I eventually get where I need to be on time because I left early and I didn't panic over it. What you are saying is so generalizable to other reactions. When your landmark moves and you really don't know is the same thing that happens inside a corporation when one department changes a procedure without having fully informed a department that has been relying on that procedure. Aha. Uh-huh. Right? right? Yeah. And I thought I was just so, telling a silly story, ratting myself out, because the dentist has to lead me to the front door. But we all need something. This is the thing, you know. If somebody has a behavior or uh, a weird little eccentricity that isn't ours, we sometimes think, oh, they're strange. But we all are strange. We all have different ways of processing. Sometimes we have learned that we need to hide our strangeness because other people will not think well of us because of it. Everybody has them. They just manifest differently. And we all have imposter syndrome. You covered that just really quickly a little bit ago, but we all have it. 
every one of us. Now, whether we're going to wallow in it or go, hey, I'm busy right now, go away, you know, we do have it. there. And I wanted to ask you really quickly, Liz, because we've got about four more minutes, what are some of the biggest opportunities and challenges facing your industry right now, and how do you see them evolving in the future? Uh, if by my industry you're meaning consulting and coaching, I yes. think one of the, the most interesting right now is AI and all the things, for example, that ChatGPT can do now. I think there are so many aspects of assessment, of interpersonal dynamics, of writing reports that could be automated, not necessarily always as well with so much thought or care, but there are procedural things that can really be done repetitively. And it will be interesting to see the ways in which that truly helps and lifts the work of consultants and coaches and where it is a cheaper alternative, not so good, but good enough for some clients. And see, now you're speaking my language. I'm known as a nerd in stilettos. I am a techie person. I think in code. I build websites. I am fascinated by artificial intelligence. And people say, oh, it's kind of new. No, it's been around for a long time. We just didn't know it. But the thing is, if you can train it to speak in your voice, you can do remarkable things with it. So I love that you brought that up. It's oddly like a human in that, at least what I'm seeing, I'm, I'm interested in your view on this, the quality of prompting determines the quality of output just like yep. people. Exactly. And remember when we all got our first computer and my mom, I remember she was terrified of her. She said, well, what if I break it? Well, then you turn it off, turn it back on again. But you had to train it. You had to understand it. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people, oh, my God, AI, this is wonderful. Others like, oh, I don't want anything to do with it. We're we're going to have to face all of these things. Liz, it, we're out of time. I told you this is the fastest 60 minutes in the world. I really appreciate your company today, and spending time with you has been such a pleasure. So I would like for you to share your online presence and your preferred means of contact for those who wish to learn more about you. Thanks very much, Denise. I thought it was so interesting, and we went in so many different places. We did. Um, so people can reach me on LinkedIn, of course, if they want to be in touch in that way. That's great. And also they can get to me via my website, which is LizKislik.com, L-I-Z-K-I-S-L-I-K. And there I have more than 10 years of articles and blogs, all kinds of material that's useful to anybody in a workplace. Um, and there's also a free ebook if anybody in your audience is interested about the interpersonal aspects of conflict. Thank you, Liz. Okay, so one more time, give people your last name. I know it's K I. You do it. You know your last name, K I S. It's K I S L I K. 
So the website is L-I-Z-K-I-S-L-I-K.com. Thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed you being here. And for our audience, as we come to the end of today's episode, I would like for you to request, I would like to request your your feedback, which I always find very valuable. So if you found the insights that Liz and I shared today useful, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Just hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with your friends and your colleagues, and go find Liz. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to catching you on the next one. Liz, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.